Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. COP26 may be over, but the conversation has only just begun. And for this podcast, I'll be inviting the stakeholders, firms, and organizations that innovate, inspire, and encourage small, sustainable steps to drive a positive legacy on the road to 2030. Good morning, and welcome to Climate Conversations in association with Epsom. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Benjamin Coombs, Director of Net Zero and Strategy at Deloitte. Ben, thank you very much for joining us this morning, and we're delighted to have you on the show. Um, I usually kick off with um, a little kind of career to date um, with all of the guests. So if it's okay by you, would you mind giving the audience a little flavour of your career journey to date and how that's evolved? Yeah, thanks very much, Mark, and, and, and very nice to be here and, and to all the listeners out there. Thank you. So I, I started my career as, as an economist, as a macroeconomist. I did uh, straight economics uh, MA at, at Edinburgh University. I spent a few years after that doing macroeconomic forecasting, growth and inflation, working with financial institutions, banks, hedge funds. Uh, and I did about three years of that. And I thought to myself, well, what what do I want to be doing longer term? C- can I do this you know, longer term, 40 years of a career? And I thought I was a better applied economist than I was a sort of theoretical economist or, or mathematical economist. So I went back and did a master's at um, UCL in environmental and resource economics, because at that point in 2005, 2006, peak oil was an issue, which is interesting given where we are now with oil. Um, yeah, oil running out was an issue. Um, and climate change was also emerging as an issue with, with the Stern Review. And so I did that master's and then managed to find my way into UK government at DEFRA, where they had climate change at the time. Then I helped set up the, the, the Climate Change Committee um, and was there for a, from 2008 to 2011. So that was an interesting period of the Climate Change Act. Um, and then most of the 2010s, I've been working in, as a climate economist for the first half of that decade at a boutique, uh, Llewellyn Consulting. And then the second half, I was at PwC uh, building a practice on innovation and sustainability because I felt at that stage by about 2016 that um, progress hadn't been fast enough and we really needed to look for breakthrough and innovate, innovative solutions. So I did that for the last five years. And I joined um, Deloitte and specifically monitored Deloitte, the strategy consulting arm in, in 2021. And I've been here about eight months um, building a practice around net zero transformation uh, and net zero strategy and climate tech. Again, sort of extending that theme to try and um, accelerate solutions and get firms to make better choices to, to transform their operations. It's a really kind of interesting career to date, Ben. One of the things I think I'd said to you before that I was always interested in was your, your journey from the kind of economy piece into the environmental and climate piece because I think often we see these at being two ends of the kind of spectrum and in actual fact they're, they're clearly a lot closer linked um, than they actually may appear. Is that something you, you can see growing in the future that there will be more kind of work around that environment and economy aspect and actually there might be more courses around that and even businesses will start to see the bottom line being intrinsically linked towards sustainability and the environment as well? Absolutely. I think we had a phase, what's called from an economics is a sort of Pigouvian tax of taxing externalities, things that are external to the system, which in economic terms is called a social cost. And a social cost can be greater than a private cost. For example, if you just dump things in a river and you don't have to pay the cleanup of it, you, you know, you've had the private cost of your production, but you haven't faced the social cost. So there's been a, there's been a, a sort of journey to try and internalize those taxes. And that's essentially the essence of, of what people are saying about a carbon tax, that if you emit one ton of carbon, you should pay a charge on that social cost of that carbon to, to society. Uh, what was interesting in my, my career is in 2005 to 2010, carbon prices, carbon taxes, um, market mechanisms like the EU emissions trading system were all the rage and, and economics took quite a central role in, in, in climate activity for those five, six years. 
then obviously, you know, we're in the midst of the financial crisis, the global financial crisis in sort of 2008, 9, 10 as well. Um, and it just sort of slipped to the back burner as a topic. Climate slipped as a topic, but also the economics of, 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 um, of activity slipped because I think, you know, taxes aren't popular um, in general. And, you know, there was, there, was a, there was a phase where taxes sort of slipped off the agenda. Emissions trading seemed good, but was quite complex. And could people get their heads around it? How were people going to operate? And obviously, you know, the EU ETS has really, uh, if you've looked at the prices, has really shot up to record highs over the last six months. Um, but what's interesting is just as an agenda item, there, there was a lot of political nervousness, I think, around taxes and, and trading. And, and then a lot of work, interestingly, went into that innovation and technology. But what we're seeing in the last couple of years is a, a realisation, I think, that without that broader policy and regulatory framework, you're not going to see the acceleration in emissions reduction that we need to achieve our goals of of net zero by mid-century globally and, and halving emissions by the end of this decade. So I do think that, you know, economics has an important role to play. It's not the, you know, again, like technology, it's not the silver bullet. Economics is not the silver bullet. Club, you know, carbon pricing isn't, but we do need to get the right incentive structures. Um, I know there's a lot of concern just to say, because I'm sure some of our listeners will be going, oh, look at the gilets jaunes. Look at the energy um, crisis we've got going now. Well, there is something quite simple you can do. You can just cr- collect the tax and redistribute it. So there are ways, you know, it, all you're trying to do is to shift relative prices of um, fossil fuels versus non-fossil fuels. So I think that there's, there, there's probably a, a, another debate to have around carbon taxes. I know the Treasury doesn't like hypothecation, uh, w- w- which is earmarking taxes for a certain thing. So... You know, the, the UK Treasury, not lots of other places around the world don't like to say we've collected 10 billion from, you know, carbon taxes and we're going to spend 10 billion on helping fuel poverty or insulation or the things. But I do think we need to have, given, given the extent and the scale of the challenge we're in and the rapidity which we need to shift systems, I do think we need to bring that conversation up again and have a, you know, grown up debate around how can we shift the incentive structure that doesn't disproportionately affect um, people who are, you know, have fuel poverty. And I think you'll see in the media at the moment, what everyone is saying is we therefore need to roll back, not everyone, sorry, some in the media are saying we therefore need to roll back on net zero commitments. I think that's precisely wrong. I think it's exactly the opposite of that, that we actually need to have a debate about how we shift our system quicker. Essentially, we've got a, a situation at the moment where we've got very high wholesale gas prices in a market that we don't really control. Whereas, obviously, if we get more and more renewables over time and, you know, we get better photovoltaic solar power, better wind power onshore and offshore and better battery storage to manage the intermittency when um, obviously the, the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing and some backup, obviously, then, you know, we will be in a much better position to say this is how much energy costs i mean there'll be some volatility around it but it won't be as volatile as just relying on on, on one thing no i think it's i think it's a good point then i think the carbon pricing argument is something that's kind of been raging here in scotland for for a number of years now and certainly obviously with the kind of campbell development as well there has been a bit of debate about well if we had carbon border tax in scotland you know and we've kind of campbell seems to be on the kind of way out now um in actual fact, would it actually be worse if we kind of essentially had to keep importing oil and gas as well? So this has been something that's kind of been discussed here. I think, as you say, carbon border tax as well. Tax is almost a dirty word and your know, governments don't like to say it as well. But is there, a, I think you touched upon there, that we probably need a more adult conversation about that. Do you think we're getting closer to that or are we still at a bit of a standstill? It's a very difficult one. I think carbon border adjustments, carbon border taxes, again follow a similar trajectory they were sort of being discussed very much at the end of the noughties decade then disappeared off the agenda for a while and have come back in into conversation i think they're quite useful as 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 a threat for large trading blocks like the eu to say we're going to put this in unless you start to to get on the journey so i think from that perspective as a kind of 
you know, to raise the stakes, as it were, I think they're incredibly useful to say, look, as a trading block, if you don't, if you if you're not on this journey with us, we're going to start to do something. Obviously, the threat has to be credible. And when you get down to it, it's quite it's a very complex area of well, how much emissions are in this product. So we would need to get to a stage, I think, where we had real time data, track and traceability and be able to accurately monitor emissions. I don't think we're that far off from that. But you know, it does add, uh, it does add, you know, um, extra layers to trade. And as we're seeing, um, you know, as we're seeing with Brexit, any more forms to fill in or things to do, you know, is friction between trading blocks. So I think things would need to be carefully designed. They would need to really make the use of, and this is where the technology piece plays in, um, but I don't, I don't think this is going to be a quick solution. Is it something we probably need to look at in detail and have, you know, again, have that conversation? I think definitely yes, um, because we can't have a situation where we just lose all our industry outside the emissions, the, the emissions coverage block and leakage. And I actually did quite a lot of work for that on that with the UK government back in 2009 trying to sort of assess what that would be like if, if the UK at that point went to 80 percent and other countries didn't follow so I think it's it, it, it's an important area. I mean, I, I would hope that in a way, if, if you could get to a situation where you get the main trading blocks, you know, China, the EU, the US, to have some more of a level playing field on how they're treating carbon. And I don't know what proportion of global trade they are, but, you know, let's just guess it's two thirds. Then you've got less of a problem. I think it's it's where you've got a clear incentive to go outside a system. Um, and also, obviously, you need to look at whether things might then come to Africa, LATAM, other areas of Asia, PAC. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's an interesting area. Do we need to do more work on it? Do we have to have com- more conversations about it? Do we need to start designing things? I think the answer is definitely yes. You know, we've got a situation where we need to shift things quickly. Um, with, you know, as you can see from all of the COPs, we're not going to be able to do that unilaterally and we're not going to get everyone, every single country of the 192 on exactly the same page. So we probably are going to have to use a bit of sort of Pareto efficiency and try and get 80% of things there and, and worry about the 20% later, as it were. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a fair point, Ben. I think, you know, countries like Scotland and the Scandi, company, uh, Scandi countries as well, you know, there's that feeling that, you know, we are doing our bit, but if the bigger players aren't, then, you know, what can the difference will make? Which I can see that argument, but I think, you know, if everyone took that attitude, we, we kind of wouldn't push yeah. the agenda any further. You mentioned um, the, the COPs here as well, and usually on the, the podcast, I always kind of ask um, the guests, you know, kind of reflections on COP as well. And actually, thankfully, most guests had, had been there, and um, obviously yourself, you, you're up as well, Ben. So, I mean, any kind of, I suppose, reflections, first and foremost, uh, outcomes, but then also any frustrations as well, you know, because, I mean, I think, you know, I think overall for me, there was, there was positives as well, but there was some elements of frustration as well. But uh, keen to hear uh, your perspective on that. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I think in terms of the actual negotiation, so just, you know, for all the listeners out there probably know this, this is a negotiation, you know, this is the Framework Convention on Climate Change annual meeting of the 100, and I think it's 192, I might have that number slightly wrong, it's around 190 countries that come together to discuss the, the movement in, you know, the protocols and reporting back on the Paris Accord and trying to get something new. I think in, in many senses for me, that that was kind of what I expected. I wasn't expecting a miracle. I wasn't expecting us to close the gap to net zero. The fact that we've managed to move that trajectory down, I think half or 0.7 of the degree, you know, was progress. Is it quick enough progress? Probably not. So I think what really surprised me was 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 the public reaction, the marching, the sentiment in 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 sort of being in Glasgow, which was which was a real privilege to be there. So just to just to sort of put that in context, I was in San Francisco for the Global Climate Action Summit in 2018, which was non-state actors. And while it was in San Francisco, I didn't get a feeling that it kind of you know in pockets of San Francisco there was lots of activity going on. I didn't get a feeling that it was sort of like the main well, it was the main thing, but. Yeah, the city was sort of carrying on as normal. I was in New York in 2019 for Climate Action Week, and there was a lot going on there. You know, I think it was the first time sort of Greta Thunberg spoke, and, and you know, there were lots of activity and leaders coming in to discuss this as it was part of the UN General Assembly Week. 
and you know again you know lots going on in pockets but i know new york's a bigger place but it you know the city sort of it felt almost like apart from the traffic and the un you know everyone complaining about that you know sort of carrying on as business as usual what i got a real sense of here was not just you know and i you know not just the the, the actual summit but the whole city almost the whole of scotland because i was actually staying in edinburgh was was thinking and talking about this on the buses on the train you know everywhere you went it was the topic and i and i think that that was a real shift for me and that was a real learning i think the other learning for me was just how much corporates need to move because i think that frustration of you know companies playing the sort of honest broker uh, neutral role it, it, it's people are starting to get a bit fed up with it and and I think that you know people setting those net zero targets, which is fantastic. Um, yeah, how are you supporting others to reach their targets? How you know how are you really actively getting involved in this? And so you know certainly I went back and sharing messages of look, we need to move much further and much faster. Um, you know we can't wait now. And I and I think you've seen actually since then in, in the last couple of months. I won't name company names, but there are some who are really sort of trying to distinct you know make it make themselves more distinctive by saying look this is what we're doing here this is how we're driving activity with others and and, and i think that we will see a, an increasing bifurcation between those who are sort of lukewarm about this and, and sort of doing it from those that are really driving change and, and hopefully that pack of people or companies driving change becomes bigger and bigger i think yeah, that's an interesting point ben it's something you said at um, our panel actually as well that perhaps customers in the supply chain will actually start to ask more questions and they will start to ask, you know, kind of corporates and whatnot, what are you doing this front as well? And in, in Scotland as well, there is a bit of kind of growing sense of the kind of green procurement landscape as well, that if companies, SMEs, you know, even corporates as well, actually, um, are sort of applying for public money for, for whatever project it may be, that actually they will need to be able to show their sort of net zero credentials or at least, you know, a plan in place about what's happening there as well. Do you think that's something that's only going to accelerate or is this a bit of a, or do you see it being a kind of interim phase just after COP or, or do you only see it as, as accelerating in the future? I mean, it's always hard to say whether something will accelerate forever and ever because you know things happen i mean look at covid for example that can just derail certain things and accelerate other things so the trend i think is definitely more and more of of of, of you know sort of green procurement uh, but you know the pace of it will be determined by events uh, and whether there's a slight pause and you know and it, it's the same with climate change in a way climate change is an, an inexorable driver of change um and we will see pauses i've seen them in my career but things will pick up again because, unfortunately, the climate is still changing. The impacts are still happening. And in many ways, obviously, they're getting worse year on year. So will we see companies do that? Yes, I think that's right. And I, and I think that we're seeing central government, local government put those stipulations within their procurement that people have to show that they've made their own commitments, that they're on the journey. And obviously, as you say, down the supply chain, people say, well, we need now, we need a supplier. So yeah, they're going to go to their um, further down their supply chain and ask their customers and suppliers what they're doing and, and how they're doing it. What we've really though got a gap of is is the sort of capability and, and and competency to be able to make those changes, and that's something that you know as a firm we're trying to help with, and many others are too, because there's a whole system to change here where we put this right at the core of what people are doing. I mean. Traditionally, with environmental aspects, it's kind of like right at the end. Oh, well, let's just check we've ticked, ticked, ticked the boxes or, or met the criteria. And it's like, no, this needs to be a design principle of what you're doing in terms of your operations, in terms of your strategy. So, I, you know, if, if people are listening, they're thinking, should I take this seriously? I think the answer is definitely yes. And I definitely think we're going to see more. Yeah, the pace of how much more we see will be will slightly be determined by the, the pace of change within organisations, but better to be at the leading pack of that. Um, and it's not just going to be climate, it's going to be, you know, impact on biodiversity. I always have a you know, classic example of there's no point, you know, creating a, I work on tech, you know, no point creating a data centre, any like let's cutting down some of the Amazon to create a data centre and saying it's 100% renewable powered or putting a data centre that mucks up with a watershed and saying it's 100% renewable power, we need to look at holistic life cycle assessment of 
the impact not only on climate, but on biodiversity, you know, and there are ways in which things can be designed to help with that. So it's not as though it's always a, you know, a lose if you bring these into design principles, you can end up with win-wins. It's just if they're not in there and you factor them in at the end, it's a lot harder. I suppose that's probably where the ESG piece comes in as well, Ben, that, you know, when you think about the environment as well, there is a social consideration there as well, the government piece as well. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that agenda develops as well, because I think, you know, right now we often see these in sort of different silos as well, environment, you know, communities, working class, social, you know, all these pieces seem a bit kind of separate right now. But as you say, you know, the kind of the Amazon data center example you used, to me, that seems like an, an ESG consideration as opposed to just environment, if that makes sense. Yeah, just to be clear, I wasn't naming a company there. I was, <laughs> <laughs> um, I was naming the, 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 the place. It was just a sort of reductio ad absurdum, as it were, just to sort of put it in picture. Yeah, you're right. I think, I think it, it's going to be a, a phase where people think more holistically about things. But it is tough. I mean, I, I was in government, you know, probably, what, 14, 15 years ago, where we first sort of had the environmental impact assessment come into the, 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 the you know, the Treasury guidance, the Green Book and things and, and, the, and the Blue Book. And it's kind of, you know, how do, how do you quantify that? How do you get it in? I mean, it's not, it's not simple. These things aren't straightforward because we, we've essentially got a system that, has monetized or metricized so there's numbers on things for what you need to consider and a lot of these things you know it's, it's not that clear what the impact might be on the biodiversity or you know and obviously on just biodiversity in in particular we had the you know Dasgupta review from the treasury which i think it was last year or you know anyway it's been in the last 12 to 18 months and you look at that and you say to yourself well we had the stern review on climate in and which is also a treasury review in 2006. So we're almost 15 years behind on biodiversity in terms of the complexity of understanding and, and how to bring this into systems. And obviously we haven't got the 15 years we've spent on climate, even though I know people say, well, we haven't actually you know, done the activity on climate over 15 years. There's been a lot going on. There's, you know, research institutes, you know, analysis, um, that there has been a lot going on, you know. So there are things ready to go. There are things ready to scale. It, it's partly about, as we talked about, carbon pricing. It's partly about incentive structures. It's partly about people seeing tipping points in sectors. I mean, you certainly wouldn't have got the shifts we've seen in the in the solar industry, in the offshore wind industry. Certainly, the power, so you know, the energy transition, you would not have got without the understanding of of of, of where climate change is going. So. Yeah, it's it, it, it's a question of how can we get these things into systems quickly, and that is that is the main challenge I see. I, I honestly think we will solve this problem. My main concern is we're not going to solve it quick enough. Yeah, we will. Yeah, you can already see there will be a transition to low carbon, low you know low emissions vehicles. I think that yeah, it, it's inevitable. It's just how quick that happens. You know, you may not get 100% of the network. There may be some off-grid stuff where people still need, you know, but will 90% of the network shift? I think the answer in the next, you know, 20, 20 to 25 years, I think the answer is definitely yes. It's just, is that going to be 10 or is it going to be 20? I and mean, that's a huge difference in terms of the sort of, you know, carbon bubble of emissions that are left. I think that's a good point, Ben. It's interesting because one of the, the kind of key focuses of this podcast really is focusing on 2030 as opposed to 2040 and 2045 and 2050 and so on and so forth. And I wonder, you mean you mentioned there as well about pace, and I think that's, that's an interesting point as well. And is there a, a kind of piece here that companies, particularly in the, the wake of the last you know, kind of two years with COVID as well, is climate going to be at the very top agenda when there has been such a kind of economic devastation you know there's been a massive skills crisis now which we're seeing there's a kind of healthcare crisis and and you know as you mentioned as well you know for other external events such as Brexit and whatnot all this uncertainty you know are we at a time now where people crave stability and then the climate piece maybe falls off the wagon or do you again is this is this something that that really kind of needs to stay where it is and it can actually fall off the radar. Um, I think for me, I think it certainly seems that it's very much going to be at the forefront of boardrooms and whatnot at the top of the agenda. But obviously, you know, I think it'd be foolish if we weren't considering uh, or mindful of what's going to happen in the last 18 to 18 months, two years. Yeah, absolutely, Mark. I mean, I think 
we've been living through something that I don't think any of us can really sort of gauge the scale of really because we're still in it I mean let's be absolutely clear we may be hopefully coming towards the end of it but we are very much still in it and it, it's it's been a tragic two years I, I think this has also though focused minds on I don't think there is any business as usual anymore if I'm being honest I, I think that that's gone and I, and I do think people have been trying to warn us about that for the last 10 15 you know years and we've now had an example of an event where people were warning about it on the fringes we had MERS, SARS you know we had certain outbreaks nearly every five or six years if you actually look at the numbers from 2000 to now in the in in um you know in asia but they were contained or they weren't you know and then suddenly we've obviously had this big global pandemic so what i'm you know I mean, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a massively dark cloud, but let's hope one of the silver linings is people starting to realise that some of the, warn, the longer term warnings can come to fruition. But it is about how do we set up our economic market, business, governmental systems to deal with that? Because it's very difficult when you've got long term, um, you know, long term forces that are, that are having an impact. I mean, let's be let's be honest here, technology is still going to have a huge impact on our society over the next 10, 20, 30 years. You know, the metaverse, NFTs, you know, it continued digitization, digitalization. And, and so that is an, an inexorable force is, is still there. We, we've got a huge demographic force coming through with the baby boomer generation retiring. And, and that's causing, particularly in Western Europe, North America, I mean, that's not a global issue. But you know, because of the the baby boom after the the Second World War, that that that's 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 a huge issue to deal with, and, and I, I, it's a structural issue. I think that's the point I'm trying to make. It's not a it's not a political issue. The fact is, in terms of the demographics, you've got a bigger proportion of your population who are older, who therefore need more support, and we've got a smaller working population to support them. It's, it's a ratio issue, and one of my frustrations, I think, with with modern politics is is not being able cross-party to call out some of these issues for, for I mean, in, particularly in terms of demographics, there are just facts. You know, we know who's alive and how old they are, and we roughly know life expectancy. Obviously, that's slightly changed in the last few years. But it's 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 calling out these issues and realising the impact they're going to have. So, you know, one of the first reports I did on, on sort of, yeah, we called them long-term drivers rather than megatrends. Was back in 2013 for a big European asset manager. We were saying, look, these things aren't going away. You know, demographics, the shift in uh, economic power, uh, climate change, and technology. So I, I would say all of those uh, are going to remain in the mix. And I think you know the, the, the shift in political systems is probably one I would add from there, which I don't think we picked up you know nearly 10 years ago now, but. I think, but I think those that shift in political system is 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 a function of how those other drivers have played out. So I think that you know how how economics, technology, climate have impacted economies and societies is leading to some of the reactions we're seeing. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a good point, man. And it's almost in some ways it's almost hard to unpick each of those individually and focus on without seeing the impact of the other as well. I mean, you know, during the pandemic as well, you know, there was all this kind of, I suppose, discussion about how emissions had came down, you know, lack of, you know, business flying and, and, and so on and so forth as well. But I suppose moving forward, you know, I think one of the things about COP as well, going back to that, was even though, you know, during COP we were still very much in the midst of the pandemic, there was something I, I, I certainly felt about power of people gathering in the room, which I think we do still need as well. So I guess it's that conundrum of, of balance as well. Um, and I think, you know, hopefully you know, moving forward, we'll find more sustainable ways to, to kind of do so. One of the one of the pieces that we were talking about, the kind of economic landscape there as well, Ben, but in terms of sort of small businesses and SMEs, as I mentioned, you know, it has been a really kind of challenging time for them as well. And I guess one of the things I would be interested in is how do you see those businesses kind of maintaining a kind of degree of resilience moving forward in the future? I mean, there's a million and one things they need to think about. And, you know, countries like Scotland, which is a kind of 93, 94% SME economy, you know, um, some would say, you know, 
for corporates and stuff, it is easier because you've got expertise in-house, you know. What are some of the small steps that some of these companies can be thinking about on their on their journey to net zero, even just to, to get them started? Yeah, it's a really good question, and it's one that, that comes up time and again. And I, and I think you're right. I think a lot of this issue has been sort of tackled, well, or, or sort of taken on board, whether it's being tackled or not, is another question, but it's been, been taken on board by large corporates. I think for smaller, smaller medium companies, talk to each other i think you you know this is not i think one of the one of the mistakes that i think the climate community made and i yeah i'm i'm one of them and yeah 15 years ago was to try and say this is something completely different from everything else and i and i don't think that helps i think i think to say look this is not that dissimilar from some of the other big changes that you're likely to see in trade from technology in terms of the markets you focus on, in terms of tastes and trends of consumers, you know, this is another thing to layer into that. So what I would probably say to any you know, director or, or, or CEO of a, of a small, medium enterprise is this, is just you know, how do you manage and navigate those other issues that, that buffet you as, as a company? And I would use similar fora for this. Of course, there may need to be new fora because it's a new topic. But what are the types of partnerships, alliances, ecosystems that you've built up for your other topics that that that, that manage and buffet the business over the last 10, 15 years? You know, technology is probably a good example of that, I think. How have you how have you managed that as a as a topic? Well, you know, you might want to look at similar ways to try and try and manage this because it, you know, in a in a way that we saw from 2005 to 2020, a shift from analog to analog to digital. Over the period, sort of, you know, twenty fifteen to twenty thirty, we're going to see a shift from sort of brown to green, as it were, from the fossil fuels to the non fossil fuels. And it's kind of like, how did you think about that issue? I always think it's it's easier in life if you've got some type of parallel, some type of mental framework to work with. I think you know, as I say, one of the reasons I think climate, you know took so long to, to to really get embedded was everyone was like i'm not sure how to deal with this and we, and we still have that issue you know even where i am now you, we have issues of saying well well what is this you know how, and, and and we're trying to sort of think about how do we map that to common business problems and say look it's not dissimilar to this type of problem that you had before and layer in other areas because essentially you know if you think about firms they're constantly transforming they're constantly thinking about how do they evolve and i suppose what what I'm really saying today is this is another big element that you need to adapt and evolve evolve with in the same way that you have with you know demographics and trade and other aspects that are shifting. Yeah, no, absolutely. Ben. I think a good parallel for me to draw, I always think, is the kind of digital transformation journey and, yeah. and COVID, you know, like, you know, in, you know, at Scotland, as you know, some of our kind of community that we work with as well, we saw kind of rapid digital transformation, you know, companies who, to be frank, weren't even trading online, you know, they were just kind of relying on the kind of local market presence, and then all of a sudden, you know, that was shut down through external factors, and they had, they were essentially forced to digitally yeah. transform as well. So I think you're, you're absolutely right, it's, it's important to have lessons that you can draw upon from other experiences as well, but one of the things that seems to come back to, and it's, you know, one of the next topics I want to discuss is around people, around leadership, around skills, and I think one of the things that's quite interesting is part of the stuff you've done in your previous role at PwC uh, and the State of the Nation Climate Report um, was around, you know, climate tech, you know, you know, technology whole, you know, it's only growing, right? I think we all kind of know that. But I think one of the things that that's probably a bit of an issue is because it's quite deep in knowledge in terms of the expertise required, you know, the skills agenda possibly isn't quite at the level it needs. So in actual fact, you know, yes, the technology is there. But do we need to go on a kind of major journey with regards to our skills development, you know, upskilling, reskilling, and so on and so forth? Absolutely. And I would make a distinction between green jobs and green skills. So I think, you know, there will be a proportion of green jobs in in, in the UK and Scotland. And we, you know, we know that those need to sort of rise five, sixfold over the next sort of 10 years. So there's a big job to do there. But then there's also the fact that nearly everyone will need to have green skills or understand green in the same way and trying to use the analogy again in the same way that we all need digital skills now so over the last 10 years we've all gone on a sort of digital upskilling journey even if perhaps if you haven't realized it 
you know, some of it's been sort of just infused in, into what we do. As you say, there were some who really had to sort of take that journey in the last two years for obvious reasons. And so we do, we do need to bring green skills into everyone's mindset because going back to the, you know, the previous back and forth we had about procurement, I mean, you know, so people who work in those areas are going to need to understand what does green procurement mean? How do I make that work? And we can't have everyone, you know, we're not going to be able to have everyone to be a sustainability expert in the same way that everyone isn't a digital expert. We do need to have digital literacy and we need people to have climate literacy. So, yeah, I think I think that that's a big area. It's something that you know we're working on at Deloitte. It's something that you know our, our clients are coming to us with because obviously you don't want to just make a you know a sustainability team. And the the other thing I would say is you know at Deloitte we've got three hundred forty five thousand people. We've probably got two two and a half thousand people. Yeah, particularly specialised on the sort of sustainability and climate change agenda. Well, we can't have the other you know three hundred forty two and a half thousand increasing emissions and we've got two and a half thousand reducing emissions that's not going to work we really need the whole firm to be driving towards this agenda and I, and I do think while i like the focus on individuals shifting to a green energy supplier thinking about you know either getting a smaller engine vehicle or obviously switching to hybrid or electric you know if you can afford it um and thinking about your choices and thinking about gas boilers and shifting those over when yours comes up for for renewal and you know, using less water, using you know, using less electricity, all of these things, these are all helpful, uh, and I would I would encourage everyone to do them. You know, shifting to public transport, cycling, and it can help with healthy and well being as well. But if if you are the sort of person who comes in and you manage a I don't know hundred million pound program over four years, the bigger impact you can probably have on the climate is thinking about how do you bring climate thinking into that program rather than your individual activities because you are leveraging you know companies it can be government you know it can be infrastructure so the choices you make there could have you know particularly people who work on you know billion billion uh, pound projects you know that they can have a much much bigger impact and so it's it's about bringing a climate mindset to work and not just saying well i've done all my good stuff at home you know i've I'm I'm doing all the things that I've been asked. I've really reduced all of your emissions. Well, if you go into work and then don't come and drive the reduction in work, then it's it's gonna you know it's not gonna it's not gonna lead us to the outcomes we need. No, I think it's a really good point, Ben, as well. And I think you know, in some ways, you're absolutely right in about the individual choices. You know, I think the balance here is yes, individuals. You know, we can all make our own choices, but ultimately, you're not responsible for others' choices in day to day life. You know, so doing that from a kind of company corporate level down actually you can impact other businesses other individuals at the top because you can kind of set out the framework so there is something pretty powerful there um and i think as you say you know not everyone's going to be a kind of you know renewables engineer or, or sustainability expert but you know if we can get people to us a level that they have a kind of understanding of that i think that will go a long way i mean do you think is that something that I mean, it's, it's obviously, you know, Deloitte and, you know, others in, in your kind of space, Ben, are kind of actively looking at that, the workforce with different courses and getting all employees to a certain level. But do we actually need to take this to a complete, a, a even more granular level at schools, for example, colleges, universities, you know, really work our, our way up? And I think kids nowadays certainly are more interested in it, but probably not necessarily through the education system. It's probably something that has came, you know, through their kind of social lives and their peers and whatnot. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, my, my children are 12 and 10, and, and I certainly see that there is a bit, yeah, there is definitely more in, in, in the curriculum, even at these early stages than, than than obviously we had, or certainly I had back in the sort of late 80s, early 90s. I think, um, yes, I mean, the, the answer is yes. It, it's, it's how we get the right skills to the right people. There's a general level of understanding that everyone needs to have. And then, as you say, there's, there's specialisms. So it's when do we introduce those specialisms? I mean, I would hope that, you know, nearly every course, if it's going to be forward looking, um, I mean, it's slightly different, obviously, if someone's studying history or something like that, but yeah, any course that's thinking about the, the, you know, the, the future, and, and I would argue that probably a history course needs to have a module on what do those learnings from history tell us about now and, and what we should be doing next. Um, yeah, because I do, I, but I do think everyone should have some understanding of, you know, those 
demographic check, you know, the, the, the big things impacting society. I, I think I think we haven't succeeded in our education if, if people don't have a broad understanding of some of these issues um, on climate, on, on tech, you know, technology in particular is another one where I don't think I had any training on technology, if you know what I mean, as, as, as you know, obviously just using the computers to do the things, but on the impact of technology or what technology could do. So I do think, you know, how do we get digital skills, green skills? How do we get skills about, you know, the, the, the economy? I, I know that there's been an issue over several years about, you know, people having the sort of life skills of, you know, how to manage mortgages, budgeting, car finance, you know. And I, and I do think that, yeah, we need to better equip people for the real world. And that, that, that doesn't take around. And, you know, I've got, you know, I've got plenty of academic background and I'm still involved at London School of Economics. So that doesn't take away from the need for frontier research, you know, research institutes, academic understanding. Look, we wouldn't have had a vaccine without really pushing to the frontier of, of, of healthcare and, and pharmaceuticals. So I'm not trying to say we don't need that. Of course, we need that. That needs to be a central pillar to, to our industrial strategy. But we also need everyone to have a, just a broad understanding of, of, of the key aspects and, you know, and a sort of yeah i think that could really help with our economy and society in a way to really understand how to tackle some of these issues as well i think that's a good point as well ben i think you know academia can you know at times get a bit, a bit of a kind of wrath for not being you know innovative or not being commercially minded and, and what and you know and so so on and so forth you know and you know, having kind of been in a kind of academic institute as well, you know, I think for me, you know, it's not that, you know, I, I absolutely agree with you on that front as well. And I think, you know, but for me, it's about what does academia teach you in the, the kind of, not that academia is not the real world, because of course it is, but what does it teach you in terms of business, in terms of education, and how do you put that, I guess, into practice? I guess that's probably one of the real challenges as well. And I just, I suppose, in the kind of final kind of segment, I just want to kind of, uh, kind of finish on and touch upon the kind of technology piece there as well, because I know it's something, you know, both of us are kind of very much in that space. And where do you sort of see that going? I mean, it's, in some ways it's impossible to predict because we know how quickly technology advances, but where do you kind of see that going in the next few years? And also where do you see that having that relationship with the, the climate change agenda? I mean, it is, it's an interesting topic. I, I've been reflecting on the fact that you know, I remember in, in, in 2014, I think I was at work and there was a new guy who'd come in as an intern and he was using, you know, WhatsApp or something or some messaging group to sort of message his friends. And, and I hadn't really got that with my friends. Actually, funny enough, I think there are a few more of those types of groups now with, with old school and uni friends. But there is something about growing up with something and being being familiar to you, which, you know, people used to talk about my, I, I left school in 97. People used to talk about us as the sort of computer generation or something. And I was thinking that's absolutely rubbish, really. We didn't really use computers in school. There was an ICT block with, I don't know, 30 computers. That, and then some people did GCSE. I guess it was called information technology. I didn't, as you can probably tell by the fact I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't pervasive. And it, it, I, was at, I was at school in an analog time. There's no doubt in my mind. And, and uni, I remember I got an email address. I was at Edinburgh, so that was 97. But we had, you know, but email was very much just like the task, you know, here's the task you need to do. Can you send it back? So it was almost, it really was like a mailbox. It was like, you know, how people would have handed you stuff or handed it back. It wasn't really, you know, and, and that evolution. So it's a slightly rambling answer. But I think what I'm trying to say is the, the good news is I think the next generation coming through is techn technologically literate because I think they've grown up with it. The, the question now is how do we harness that knowledge in a way that can can give us the outcomes we need? And it does go back to you know climate and other topics. What are the best ways to teach people and how they learn? Um, yeah, I've noticed even within corporate training that the sort of interactive modules are, are, are much more engaging than they were. I do think it, I do think there is a question about the, the classroom learning and, and how how we do that and that I have a concern you know on the on the downside my son when he's doing his homework I mean he's got his you know iPad next to him and he's googling everything and you kind of think is that going to give people the sort of independence and depth of thought we need and I do worry about attention spans as well uh, and you know and, and you know 
I think that's an interesting thing with our media, just more broadly on any topics, that there's constant shift from this week it's this, next week it's that, the following week it's the other, and constantly flitting around. And I'm, I'm, li- I'm purposefully not choosing a topic because it doesn't really matter what it is. It's just that it's in the news for a week and then it's gone. Um, and, you know, I've, I think you've even seen that with climate, really, you know, COP, COP26, absolutely at the top of the agenda and haven't heard much about it in January this year. There was obviously the WEF Global Risk Report where it was top. I mean, I, I put that out on LinkedIn, but I haven't seen a huge amount about what's the agenda for 2022? What are the key topics around climate off the back of COP26? You know, so there is a danger that how do we keep topics live obviously you don't want to get people bored about topics and talk about them every single minute but what are the key milestones what are the key developments we need and how can we engage and engage people in in that and i I do think that we've you know we've got an issue i mean it's it's been interesting to see how i think you know some of the big you know netflix and others have evolved and, and now they're making documentaries and trying to you know how how do we use some of the tools we've got um, how do we use schools, universities? And, and I go back to the university point. I do think, you know, it's interesting that universities, I think, are going to need to become, have a little bit more of that nexus of of public-private sector. I think we're seeing that with some of the research institutes. doesn't mean that they shouldn't be uh, doing research. Obviously, we need research into areas that aren't commercially viable. But, I mean, that is, that's absolutely important for R&D. But then we also need people who are that nexus of, hang on, there's a good idea here and how do we bring that through? And I, and I know that lots of the universities are starting that with you know, startup schemes and, and, and um, ventures and, and all of that type of thing. So something that I think the US has been pretty good at, but you know, we need to get better at, but we also we can't lose the sort of cutting edge research that isn't viable. And it's, it's kind of interesting seeing the narrative around you know the next pandemic, which I think we all know is probably going to come in the next 20, 30 years. Or I'd be surprised if it didn't, given the way we're, you know, way we're dealing with with um biodiversity and, and things like that. So you kind of say to yourself, well, what's that preparedness and how do we get there? And the fact that there may not be money for it, you know, it's always like these longer term issues. How do we fund them? How do we track them? How do we make sure that we're we're yeah being on top of them? so that we're able to act, able and willing to act in a rapid way when we need to. And and surely it's worth spending a small amount up front, particularly for an issue like that, which globally wouldn't be that much money to sort of like, how do we get pandemic preparedness? What do we need? You know, what what sort of signals and monitoring do we need? What's the protocol if something like that happens again? You know, a globally agreed sort of steps to take. but anyway, you know, it, it, it's a difficult one. But, uh, but I do think that, you know, how do we get long-term thinking with short-term endorphins is, is, a, very, is a very interesting question. Yeah, that's probably something we won't be able to solve today, unfortunately, <laughs> Ben. Um, and I suppose just to kind of finish us off as well, I always kind of ask guests, my, I suppose my final kind of question. In some ways, I think you actually answered earlier on by kind of ex- um, explaining that, you, you know, your optimism and, and whatnot for the future. But... You know, 2030, 2045 or 2050, however you want to kind of look at it. I mean, do you do you still have that optimism? Do you think, I mean, this problem can be solved or do you think, well, yeah, I guess, fall short in terms of our race to net zero? I think one thing that surprised me uh, about COVID and that continues to surprise me is is how people aren't that willing to change their mental model. So, you know, and we've seen that, I think, from the from some of, you know, let's not call out groups, but I think we've seen that, you know, the groups who wanted to do X have continued to want to do X, the other groups want to do Y, did you want to do Y. So I'm I'm less convinced as time goes on that people are going to want to change their behaviour dramatically. They, 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 they might changes. I mean, particularly where the substitute is, is, is as good or better. So I think we've seen a real breakthrough in Tesla. Uh, Tesla cars, I think, you know, Beyond Meat is making some some... You know where where you can substitute something and people don't perceive to have lost. I think we'll make some changes. My my main concern is where we're asking people to do things quite differently, and I think we will get to that stage. And I, I do think there'll be pushback. So if we could have one big breakthrough for me, it would definitely be the direct air capture 
And can we <clears throat> somehow, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to make direct air, air capture on a scale that's going to get rid of all of global emissions, you know, but can we get it to a scale where we change behavior, we bring technology forward, we get the substitution, that it becomes that part of the net zero that is, you know, makes it less difficult for us on the other areas and we don't have to push people on their behavior because that that is my main concern because I think we've seen, um, yeah, people are willing to change certain things. And actually, I was encouraged, actually, in terms of the first couple of lockdowns, both in the UK, but all, all over the world, actually. I think people were very willing, obviously, because of the threat to, to change their behavior. But longer term, I think, is, is more difficult. So I think if we could see some breakthroughs in, you know, I think it's advanced materials, essentially, that can, can suck up CO2 or, or get rid of it. Or I know there's that one where you can put it into cement. Yeah, I think we are we are going to need to see those types of breakthroughs. Um, and the other one would be around sort of, you know, advanced biofuels that are properly scalable for things like aviation. Um, because I don't think, you know, obviously we will get, I think, electric aircraft for short haul. You know, if you fly from here to the, from London to Nice or whatever, you, you'd be able to go, or London to Glasgow, I think you'd be able to go on an electric aircraft obviously if something goes wrong as well there's there are airports along the way i think it's going to be more difficult across the atlantic across the pacific um and so that that's where you know some of those sectors the steel the steel the cement that there are route maps but i but i do think we we we, we do need to we continue to see need, need to see scale of the solutions we've got on you know solar power wind electric vehicles those types of things and then we also need to see some breakthroughs in, in in some of the other sectors and then hopefully some of the technology you know if, if we hear and there's obviously climb works there's a few others who are trying to do this but it really needs scale and it really we need to know if it works as well because i know there's some ccus carbon capture news over the weekend i don't know whose plant it was but that, that isn't you know getting as rid of as much carbon as we hoped and that's why we need to get early on these things so we know you know where to push and, and where to develop further yeah, no, absolutely. Ben. I think it goes back to that phase, you know, people are creatures of habit as well, you know, and I think, it, you know, in some ways it didn't surprise me, but um, I think there's some interesting learn, uh, lessons and learnings there. But, you know, Ben, thank you very much for, for joining us and I hope um, all listeners um, have enjoyed uh, listening to your expertise and time today. Um, but until next time, uh, thank you to Benjamin Coombs and we'll see you next time for episode six. Thank you. Thanks very much, Mark. Climate Conversations is a Herald podcast sponsored by Epson. To find out more about their environmental vision, visit epson.co.uk slash about slash environment and take 20% off an annual subscription to the Herald with our exclusive podcast code. Enter HeraldPod 2021 at your checkout and access our award-winning journalism from your mobile, tablet and PC.